The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. School has begun. The school year is in uh, session. So if you're a senior who's listening, just remember that by this time next year, all your hard work will have paid off and you'll be a college student. I find that that's a pretty good reminder for my stressed out seniors. Now on to today. For my second segment, I'll be talking with Kira Tyler, a veteran college coach consultant who has helped many, many students apply to college. Today, she's here to discuss the Apply Texas essay prompts with me. Afterwards, I'll be talking with Shannon Vasconcelos, college coach finance consultant and former financial aid officer at the Tufts University School of Dental Medicine about how to finance a degree in the health professions. But first, I'm welcoming Rebecca Bestoff, college coach, educational consultant, and former admission officer at Harvard University. She'll be giving us an insider glimpse of the Harvard undergraduate admission office. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Sally. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate it. I'm really glad to be here with you. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right, great. So I I think that what everybody, I mean, Harvard is such a big name, you know, even though at this point, I think Stanford has overtaken it in terms of selectivity. Harvard is still the oldest university in the United States. It, it you know, it just has a lot of weight to it. So, um, so I think a right. lot of people, even students who don't consider Harvard to be a match for them, I think probably a lot of people are interested in finding out how how the Harvard Admission Office, you know, structures their reading process and, you know, kind of what matters to them. So I was hoping today that we could start with what happens once an admission file is complete. So let's skip over kind of the the nuts and bolts of putting the file together, et cetera. Uh, we all know that happens through the common application. But so let's say what happens when all the pieces are there, the application is ready to read. So at that point, you know, what is the reading process? Who are the people who are involved? How many times does it get read? That sort of thing. Yep. Uh, great. Uh, happy to answer that. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased to report that um, the process of reviewing applications at Harvard was incredibly thorough. Um, as, as is true at a lot of selective places, there are no cutoffs at all for GPA or test scores. We, don't, we didn't do any weeding of any kind. Um, so like other places, uh, we read by region. So the person who um, is in charge of that high school's territory would be the first reader of every application that came in from that high school uh, and is also the advocate for all those students uh, in the selection committee. 
And when I was there, we read absolutely everything that was submitted in an application. So we, we actually started with the essays, if you can believe it, Sally. Uh, people always think, oh, you, you start with the transcript and then, and then toss if it's not strong enough. No, we didn't at all. We really wanted to know what the person was like. We wanted to get a sense of, of how, they, how they were thinking about um, themselves, how they thought through the essay. So we started with that. And it all either got us really excited about the applicant and we were hoping that the transcript would be in line or um, perhaps it was just fine, a solid essay. But the essays really mattered because that's where we started. And then we moved on to the transcript. And um, we were looking for all the things that I think other selective colleges do. You know, did the student take a, a rigorous course load, five core courses? Um, did they take on the most challenge they could with APs or an IB diploma or the equivalent at that school? And did they perform really well? Um, and with the transcript, we also did look at scores. Um, and that kind of became sort of the academic profile for that student. Um, but those weren't the only things that were important, of course, in a holistic review. We really scrutinized the activity list, looking for what they might contribute, um, really read the recommendations very carefully to assess personal qualities and level of academic engagement. And then um, an interview report uh, was the last thing we read in the file. Um, and when I worked there, uh, interviews were required. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Is that, yeah. is that still the case? I mean, my sense is that that isn't, but I could be wrong. Um, I'm, I'm actually not sure, but the, the way that we did that, we had some uh, interviews in the office with staff members, uh, but the vast majority of interviews were conducted out in communities where students were applying from uh, with local alumni representatives. Uh, but those really did play a role sometimes because it was one of the only other ways that we could get a true sense of the student um, beyond the essay that they wrote or, and beyond the supplements. So. Okay, and so let's before we go before we go on further, I want to dig in a little bit here, and I think some of our readers are going to expect this, and others will be surprised by it. But you talk about five core classes. So obviously, I think most students know about um, you know English, math, science, and history, but. I still talk to people who think that foreign language, or I, we call it world languages now, is not a core. Did, did Harvard really look to see ideally four years of a world language as well as the other subjects, even for, let's they, say, a math major? Yes, uh, they did. I think um, Harvard definitely did uh, also appreciate breadth in the curriculum during high school. Um, they were looking for, you know, students who are going to go out and make a difference in the world. And these days, with the way it's it's just shrinking, it seems, um, world language was really important to be, you know, a global citizen. So uh, it definitely was important. But sometimes students may have good reasons for dropping a language. I think Harvard really definitely wanted to see at least three, preferred four, but if a student dropped um, one of the core courses, it was essential that they doubled up in another area of the core. So English, math, science, social science, as you said, Sally. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Now, is Harvard looking for, and I, I want to come back to, um, 
I want to come back to the extracurriculars because I think that's the piece that people don't always understand. But before I get to that, um, does Harvard look for demonstrated interest? In other words, do they track whether or not a student is interested in them, like shows up at that at their office, that kind of thing? No, they didn't. They're, as you might know, they received over 39,000 applications last year, um, and they were only able to admit uh, just over 2,000 for their class. It's, it's so selective that that really did not play a role. Um, but, you know, they really did look for the student who understood Harvard as a match um, or can, could at least... Uh, convey a very strong sense of themselves throughout the application. Um, you had asked me at the top of the call, you know, what happened once we read that application, and and so after um, I would do the first read on all the applications from my region, I would make, uh, you know, I would take lots of notes and make a recommendation on admission, and then I would pass the folder to a second reader in the office, which was always at random so that we would be doing first reads in our region um, and second reads from anywhere in the, in the country or in the world so we could get a, a better sense of the overall pool. Um, and if the two readers were sort of divided on how they viewed what we call them the case, um, if they were divided on how they reviewed the case, uh, it would go on to a third reader. And, and so after at least two reads, uh, it would, the folder would be returned to the regional representative to present to the selection committee. Um, so all applicants were reviewed in a committee setting, um, and no, you know, decisions were ever made by one person. So that, that's really something I want the public to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very important. And I, I, I think it's good to know for the public to know that it was the same situation at University of Chicago where I worked that colleges take these things very seriously and really agonize over them. There's no joyful cackling when they deny a student. Rather, it's very careful and considered um, when they so do true. their readings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it definitely is true because if you think about it, with a 5% acceptance rate, um, that means 5 out of 100 people who apply are given an offer, and um, most people who applied um, can do the work. So, you know, we were really looking for the, the, the sparkly applications, the, the people who were, who were really um, representing themselves and through the application really well and, and presenting unusual kinds of interests and pursuits. Um, but it, yes, it was so hard to make those decisions because there were so many real, really well-qualified students in the pool. Um, mm-hmm. Sally, everyone who got into Harvard when I worked there had their case heard by the entire admission staff and received a majority vote in order to be admitted. Um, so it, it was quite a, a process to go through, and a lot of yeah. eyes and ears were on that case. <laughs> It sounds pretty exhausting for the admission officers, too. I'll just say that. Yes. <laughs> as, as someone who's been up until, you know, midnight reading applications and then come in for an 8 a.m. committee meeting, I can promise you it's pretty tiring. Yes, yes, for, for several months, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Evenings yeah, exactly. and weekends, 
Yeah. We, we felt we really owed it to students to read the application thoroughly and look for all the reasons to advocate well for them and um, really bring their, their strongest um, talents and attributes to light. Mm-hmm. All right. So one of the one of the big questions then, though, is how do you stand out? How do you become one of those five out of 100? You know, assuming like, you know, you're just you're another kid at like a suburban high school. Like so you're not you're not part of an institutional priority, like a recruited athlete or something like how do you how do you then stand out? Yeah, well, um, I, I think uh, there are a lot of different ways that, that students can stand out, and we, we did use a term in the office called um, distinguishing excellence. If you were a student who had a distinguishing excellence, um, that, that would help to capture our attention. So what is a distinguishing excellence? Um, it's probably best defined as some passion or talent that's pursued at an unusually high level. So again, Sally, most students in, the, in, in that applicant pool had high grades and scores and rigorous courses and probably leadership in high school. So a distinguishing excellence is, is, is an achievement or an interest that goes even beyond that. Um, maybe a couple of examples would be helpful? Absolutely. Oh, okay, great. So um, I, I remember to this, to this day um, a couple of students um, who had interesting, distinguishing excellences. One uh, was in my territory of Maine. She had grown up in a, house, uh, a household of smokers, um, and she felt very strongly um, that this was something she wanted to see change in her family and in her community. So she created an anti-smoking campaign that started off in her school but really caught momentum and then she uh, contacted county officials to uh, promote this campaign at a higher level, and it actually got to the state level with real documented impact that she was able to put in the application. She ended up being recognized uh, by the governor uh, of Maine at the time for that, Um, and I, I remember really pounding the table for her because I just thought that was so um, amazing given that she really did not have uh, all the advantages in life. Um, And another example I would point out is um, uh, one student I read about who was a male ballet dancer. Um, uh, Of course, ballet is, is a common discipline among females, less common among males, and he had fallen in love with dance at an early age, pursued it all the way through high school. And what was interesting about his case was that he wrote so articulately about being um, male in a female-dominated discipline. Um, And beyond that, his talent was enough to be, um, he was accepted at international-level programs during the summer. So really unusual, um, very cool pursuit. And, of course, distinguishing excellences can be almost in any realm. Um, So I was pointing out, you know, service and art, but it certainly can be in the academic realm or um, in the political science realm. Uh, so many, so many different um, uh, interests could take the form of a distinguishing excellence. Um, so I'll stop there for a moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was thinking about, I, I've worked with a couple students who got into Harvard, and one was really interesting. She was, um, I mean, she was certainly a leader at the school. She was 
um, secretary of the student body, but during a year when the president was kind of a flake, you know, let's just be honest, sometimes that happens when it's a personality, you know, just a kind of a personality contest. And so she ended up really picking up the slack from the president. So she was a wonderful member of the student community. But on top of it, her it was very interesting because her mother was a Korean immigrant and had started a catering business and really sort of didn't know how to negotiate um, kind of, I guess, the, the California and United States uh, business environment. And so uh, this young lady kind of wrote her mother's business plan for her, like just really did like all kinds of things to help her mother get up, get the business up and running. And it became a highly successful catering business that, that, you know, this young lady would also do some of the cooking for on top of everything else, you know, and, and could articulately discuss the differences between Korean cuisine and French cuisine and California cuisine, which was so much fun to talk to her about. And I thought probably it was the business, like it was this sort of outside pursuit that made her stand out beyond all the wonderful things she did at the high school. Would you say that was probably the case? Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely think that um, when a student can really take what they love um, and really go deeper with it and create some impact, um, that goes sort of beyond what their peers would do. I mean, that that's when it kind of becomes a distinguishing excellence or something that goes, um, you know, beyond the school community, beyond even um, the state, but to the national or international level. Now, Sally, I want to make it clear that in my experience at Harvard, not, not absolutely everyone admitted had a distinguishing excellence, but that was a very significant portion of the admitted pool, um, and certainly included in that group were, were the true academic standouts um, who had big numbers and were winners of national or international competitions in science or math or debate. Um, But there was still a pretty significant portion of the admitted pool who were just super strong across all of the things that we were looking for. So they were, you know, doing all the right things at school, taking all the right classes, getting super strong grades, um, but they were also very involved and, and leaders in their extracurriculars. And I think it might surprise people to know that um, almost more than other things, personal qualities were incredibly important and talked about with regularity within those um, selection committee meetings. You know, did this student have good character, um, and using their gifts for the greater good. Were they going to bring out the best in other people around them? Were they going to make an impact um, that went way beyond themselves? Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. And so I think, um, all right, I think that's it. There's so much more that I could talk to you about, but I do need to go on to the next segment. So, oh. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much, Rebecca. Um We're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll be talking to Kira Tyler about the Apply Texas application essays. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, now we'll be speaking with Kira Tyler about the Apply Texas Essays. Welcome, Kira. Thanks, Sally. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for coming on the show today to talk about the Apply Texas application essay topics. We won't have time for all of them, so I thought we should focus on topics A, B, and C in order. So let's go first to topic A. Um, Do you have the question in front of you? Would you like to read it out loud for our listeners? Yep. Hold on one second. There we go. So, sure, topic A, um, the, the question is, what was the environment in which you were raised Describe your family, home, neighborhood, or community, and explain how it has shaped you as a person. All right. So, what are your what are your thoughts about that particular topic? I think it's an interesting yeah. one. I have to say that I actually really like the Apply Texas topics this year better than I've liked them previously. Um, but I'm curious about your specific thoughts and kind of how you would advise a student who is sitting down to you know write these essays. Yes. So I agree. I think that they are better than they've been in the past. Um, They're not my favorite still. Um, I think there are actually a couple similarities, actually, between the first and second one. Um, Mm -hmm. But in general, uh, I do like them because I think it encourages um, potentially some creative thinking and some introspection, um, which is always something that I'm excited to see students do. Um, You know, I'm I'm never satisfied with kids who just kind of want to, like, get it through and what's going to sound the best and all of that. I want people to actually really sit and be thoughtful and careful. 
And so I do think that this essay really accomplishes that. Um, you know, I would say that as my students are writing this, I encourage them to try to be as specific as possible, right? So rather than just saying my family, you know, are they talking about their extended family? Are they talking about their own family unit of four or three or however many? Um, and um, so I want them to be as specific as possible. Um, I find that sometimes this, like, community phrase people get a little hung up on um, because they automatically think, like, you know, my community, like, where I was born. And I'm like, no, oh, that's actually your neighborhood. <laughs> um, and so think, helping them think about the many ways in which community comes across school, home, um, you know, some other kind of extracurricular network, a hobby, all of those ways in which community exists is a conversation that I often have with my students. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that it that that's a really important thing to note because, you know, I, I talk to some students who, you know, I'm in Connecticut and maybe they live in Darien or New Canaan and they're like, you know, I, I you know, where I live is perfectly nice, but I just don't think it's that interesting to to write about, um, you know, but I don't have any other community. And, and I kind of sit there, so I'll ask them questions. And, of course, they have community. They they have community maybe with their fellow lacrosse players. They have community with the, um, you know, the, the students that they're involved in, you know, student council with sometimes. You know, right. community right. can be very broad. Agreed. I've had students write really lovely essays around various ways in community exists, like sports or marching band or a language club or, you know, some students who attend um, a cultural high school experience, like a Chinese school or something like that, Hebrew high school perhaps, um, even write really interesting essays about that. I will say that I think one of the pitfalls of this this kind of a prompt and the second one, SAB, falls into their topic B, falls into this category too a little bit is that this is one of the times where I see my students get a little bit defeatist, um, and I will often hear sort of what you alluded to, which is, I don't have anything interesting to say. I haven't had anything happen to me, and I have just a normal family. And I'm like, first of all, what a gift. <laughs> you know, right. to have what one would consider a normal, whatever that means. I don't even know sometimes, but, you know, what a gift to have had nothing really rock your sense of self you know, during your formative years. Um, and so they they see their experience as pedestrian and mundane, but I really, that's really, you know, when I start asking a lot of questions um, around things that at first may seem, you know, uninteresting and boring, but my goal is to try to, like, hit that spark. You know, what is it, what's that one place that they feel really special, really comfortable, they have a specific role you know, that's what I really, really want to hear about. Mm-hmm. And I really like that, like that level of comfort and also where maybe they have a role because it's really important, I think, for them to talk about how it shaped you as a person and what your role is in that community. Um, yeah. I, I, I've read an essay by a student who she wrote all about her immigrant pa- grandparents and being part of this immigrant community, and she comp- which was a wonderful topic, by the way. I mean, if that is you, that's a wonderful topic. Mm-hmm. But she completely left herself out of it. You know, she said they yeah. influenced me, but she she never explained how she never sort of talked about, yeah, like what really what the impact on her had been. Um, so I think that's an important thing to note as well. Yeah, agreed. That's the trick, right? In that, you know, as all admissions or admission officers will tell you, we don't want to admit the person you're writing about. We want to admit you. And so make sure that 
because you're using another person or a group of people as your foil, essentially, to help you write about yourself, that there is enough of you in there so that we get you. You know, we understand who we're admitting. We understand who this person is behind the application. So I would agree Mm -hmm. with that. And I I think, you know, if we could give her, we could have fixed this for her, we probably would have said, focus much more maybe on your immigrant grandparents and, you know, your relationship with them as it relates to how they, you know, fall into your family and maybe don't expand it into the community part, but perhaps just your role as granddaughter, um, you know, and their impact on how you were raised. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And actually, so you've already mentioned topic B, so I think it would be a good idea to read it. Do you have it in front of you or I can you do, read it now? Yes, I came prepared, Sally. Um, yeah, so <laughs> most students have an identity an interest, or a talent that defines them in an essential way. Tell us about yourself. Mm-hmm. So that is, I mean, I, I've, I've had the same experience you've had about students going, you know, I've had such an ideal upbringing. I don't have anything yeah. interesting to say. And I'm like, <laughs> right. please don't complain about this, you know. And, and I'll just say, by the way, as a rule, it's a bad idea to complain in, in an admission essay, right? So let's just get that out yes. on the table and move on to all the wonderful things that you can talk about. Um, so what are, what are some examples of, of kind of essays that have fit this mold that you thought maybe have worked, Kira? Yes. So I will say that in, that in some ways now, I, I like to think about being efficient. This can be similar to, I think, what a lot of students write about for their common app essay. I will just come right out and say that, that some elements of that usually fit this prompt, But beyond that, this is where I like to hear a student talk about perhaps their identity as an older sibling, right, or their interest in, uh, it could be something totally mundane. Maybe it's that they have a really keen interest in Chopped, the television show. Why is it so interesting to them? How does it define them? Has it influenced them? How has it encouraged them to do something different, something interesting, something beyond just sitting on their couch and watching it? Um, you know, or a specific talent. You know, sometimes people have talents that don't fit into the, the ordinary box, but they also think, well, I do it outside of school. It doesn't seem important. You know, and I'm like, wow, I would love to hear about, you know, how you drag race, you know, or how you do motocross on the weekends or even your interest in skateboarding or something. And I'm saying these things as if they're super um, different. They're really not, but I think sometimes people think, that sometimes hobbies can also be talents as well. And so, um, you know, maybe it's you have a real talent and a knack for movie quotes. Like, why? How did it start? I like to encourage people. I like to get them talking and be thinking about the things that make them quirky, but they may have internalized as just, you know, normal, right? Nothing special. Right. I actually, I mean, this is one of the situations where I tell students, let your nerd flag fly. Like that stuff that you think is too nerdy for your fellow students to know about, this might be a good place to write about it. Um, I have a student who is really interested in politics, and he wrote a wonderful essay about like how he reads from all sides of the spectrum, you know, everywhere from sort of Breitbart to Slate and then Washington Post and the New York Times. And, you know, he'll kind of read about a certain issue and he just tries to read all the different viewpoints because he thinks it's interesting and illuminating. And it's and he's happy to disagree with the writer, but it's really interesting to find out 
what, you know, this very opposing viewpoint is. And I thought this, what a wonderful essay for this topic. Yeah, I agree. I similarly had a student write about um, their birthday always fell around a major holiday um, and what it was like to celebrate both like a major national holiday and their birthday and how it felt, you know, to sometimes feel, you know, like they got a little lost in the, in the, in the spotlight. It was really, it sounds uninteresting, but it was really interesting. And this person happened to be a really gifted writer. And so um, it really worked. And it was about a transition from, oh my gosh, I'll never, I don't have this day to myself, right? Like nobody wants to celebrate with me because they're all at home. And I feel like I always have to play second fiddle, you know, and feeling a little like guilted, um, but then recognizing the fun of actually having it because then it means you could celebrate at a different time. So it's almost like having two. Um, it just turned into something really, really fun and um, how she spent that time on her specific birthday doing service. Um, it was a good day to do that. So um, that was always what she did on her birthday. And then she celebrated it um, a little bit differently when she could do so with more people. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that sort of became her, her identity a little bit as like the Christmas baby. So, um, you know, really like sort of blah, blah kind of things that I think people have glossed over can turn into gold. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think this goes back to something you said at the beginning of, of mm-hmm. uh, when we started talking, which is about the mundane can be wonderful. The mundane yeah. can actually be the best thing to write about. And I can tell you that when I was reading student essays, I was actually really interested in what their life was like on a day-to-day basis. I wasn't interested okay. in what happened on their trip to Thailand. I was interested in what they did, you know, what their life was like when they were at home, basically, or at school in that day-to-day basis. Yeah, I would agree. It's like it's like when people get, you know, married and, you know, I'm like, the wedding is great, but what happens to, on a daily basis in your relationship? It's sort of that same thing, right? We don't just want to focus on the very, very big event that we want to know what it's like just your regular average Tuesday. Exactly. All right, yeah. so let's move on to topic C. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could read that one, that. that would be great. Yeah, so this is, you've got a ticket in your hand. Where will you go? What will you do? What will happen when you get there? So I want to start out first with one thing that I would suggest not doing. And I would say, please do not write about, you know, if you're so lucky to have an annual family vacation, please don't write about your annual family cruise that you take (laughs) to the Caribbean and you sit around on the beach or whatever it may be. You know, that sort of leisurely, um, I don't want to say indulgent because that doesn't sound kind, but, you know, the one where you're just like, I'm just going to hang out for seven days and read a lot of books and swim. And, like, we would prefer that that not be the answer to this. I think um, a better way to think about this is to either go very big or to go regular and mundane. So Mm -hmm. um, I would say if you want to go to Mars, you should talk about wanting to go to Mars and like how you've always wanted to do that and what you want to do and why it's so interesting or you want to, you know, mine would be to attend every major sporting event, um, you know, possible. So the Olympics and all of the, you know, the tennis um, championships and the NBA finals. And that would be multiple tickets, obviously, but so something really big, dream big or something that's a little bit smaller. I want to go back to the, 
you know, nature museum or the nature walk that I did uh, with my grandpa when I was eight years old, and he showed me, you know, how maple trees, you know, get sapped or whatever. You know, it could be small, personal, special. Mm-hmm. But I think it's open enough that it should really say something about you. Like, like yeah. um, I-, I talked to a young man who said, well, I was thinking about taking a ride in a submarine. And I said, well, what what does that mean to you? Is that something you've always wanted to do? And he's like, no, I'm actually not interested in going under the water. And I'm like, okay, this isn't just a vehicle to show that you're clever. This is a vehicle... Right. Which, you know, this young man was. He was a very smart young man. I'm like, what what actually interests you? And then use this as a vehicle to to highlight that, something that yeah. does matter to you and has mattered to you for a long time. Right. I agree with that. I think that's really smart um, if kids are able to do that. And certainly, um, you know, with our support, um, you know, and listening to our podcast, they'll be able to get there. But I think what's interesting, you and I said it, right? So you're talking about the why. I mentioned the why. The question doesn't ask why. They ask where, what, what will you do, and what will happen. But Mm -hmm. I do think that if you don't go through the process of thinking about the why, that students are really going to hit a roadblock. They're going to find themselves, you know, being able to get an interesting hundred words, and then they're going to feel stuck because there really is, you don't want it to be gimmicky, right? And so I definitely agree with you that we just don't want it to be a wild idea. If it's a wild idea, great, but it needs to be grounded, you know, in something that connects back to the student. Okay. Yeah, I completely agree. All right. Well, I think that that is all the time we have left today. So thank you so much, Kira. You're welcome. Thanks, Sally. I had fun. Thank you. I did too. And oh, just before I leave, I should mention that UT Austin, for example, in terms of lengths of essay, usually yeah. recommends no more than two pages, double spaced. Um, but we really recommend a page. Would you agree with that, Kira? Yes, I would recommend a page. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> you know, don't don't write your opus uh, on this on this prompt. <laughs> yes, do not write your opus. All right. Thanks again, <laughs> Kira. Thank um, you. All right, everyone, I want to take a minute for our school spotlight, and today I'm going to highlight Muhlenberg College. Um, Muhlenberg College, or Berg, as it's more affectionately called, has earned a stellar reputation for delivering a top-notch liberal arts education to a passionate, engaged, and intellectual student body. Um, The states of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York are particularly well represented among the college's 2,200 students, but students from nearly all 50 states call this Lehigh Valley School home. Um, Although Muhlenberg is affiliated with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, students celebrate a wide range of faith traditions, um, and in fact, with approximately 30% of students identifying as Jewish, Hillel is the college's largest student organization. Um, What are students studying? While many true liberal arts colleges don't offer a major in business, at Muhlenberg, it's one of the most popular academic programs. Um, The theater program is also a major draw for prospective students. They have six mainstream productions every year, one of which is a musical, and it allows students to focus on acting and directing, design and technology, performance studies, or minor in dance and or music to to pursue musical theater training. Um, And if the college's 110 clubs are not enough to keep you busy, Philadelphia is just an hour's drive away. All right. Thanks, everyone. I'll be back in just a few minutes.
stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. In this segment, Shannon Vasconcelos will be discussing how to fund a health professions degree. Welcome, Shannon. Hi, Sally. How are you? I'm doing great today. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Good. So let's dive into this subject. I mean, I think, you know, my sense is that medical school, for example, costs a lot. I'm guessing it's the same for dental, etc. So what does a yeah. typical medical dental degree cost? Costs a lot, you're right. Um in terms of averages, I just looked, the American Medical, Association of American Medical Colleges say the average tuition and fees for an in-state public university, uh, an in-state public medical school is $35,000 a year. Uh, for private school, it's about $50,000 a year. Um, and that's just tuition and fees. Uh, when you add in, you know, living expenses and Supplies, instruments, and things that you have to buy, um, you know, add another twenty, thirty thousand to that. It's, it's very, very expensive. It's more expensive, um, certainly, than undergraduate school. And, and they are, if we're talking about medical school, dental school, veterinary school, those, those professional uh, health professions degrees, they're four year programs as well. Um, I just looked just to get a couple specific examples. I'm in the Boston area. I looked at our medical school, UMass Medical School. It's $67,000 uh, 
in-state, uh, 93,000 out-of-state, and then I almost passed out when I looked at the, the, the school where I used to work, Tufts Dental School, private institution. Expen- uh, expenses have, go- have gone on quite a bit since I left, which was only a few years ago. Their build costs right now are $90,000 a year, and when you include um, estimates for living expenses and supplies and all that, $115,000 a year. Uh, and again, that's a four-year program. Uh, you know, that's going to be on the high end, kind of an elite northeastern private school. But basically, it's going to be expensive everywhere, no matter where you go, where in the country, public, private. All of these health profession schools are expensive. You know, you're going to be looking at probably at least 200000 going up to, you know, around 400000 um, for the total program. And that's for your four-year, that's for your, uh, you know, your basic degree. And then if you want to do a specialty program, you know, prices are just going to go up from there. Mm-hmm. Yep, those are scary numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, will, I will absolutely acknowledge that. But yeah. um, but it sounds like you can apply for financial aid. Obviously, very few people yeah. could pay for that out of pocket. So how right. does it work to apply for financial aid? Yeah, and the process actually works very, very similarly to what students would have done uh, for their undergraduate college. You fill out the FAFSA form. You've got to fill that out for every school, every program, no matter where you go. You're always going to fill out the FAFSA. Um, One kind of interesting quirk um, of these health professions programs, um, now as a graduate student for federal financial aid, for any government financial aid, as a graduate student, you are automatically considered independent. So that's different than when you would have applied for undergraduate school and you would have had to provide your parents' information. As a graduate professional student, you are automatically considered independent for federal financial aid purposes. So you can fill out your FAFSA form without providing your parents' information. Now, now that I've said that, there are some colleges, some of these health professions, um, graduate programs, that actually will request parental information um, in order to award their own, um, their own um, grant funding. So you can apply for the government aid on your own, but many schools, if you want to apply for their own institutional grant funding, you do still have to provide your parents' information even though you're a graduate student. Um, it will actually kind of tell you if you're filling out the FAFSA and you check off that you're a graduate student, it will say, okay, so we just need your information and you've completed that. Thank you very much. Um, as a graduate student, we do not need your parents' information, but if you are pro- applying to certain health professions programs, you may want to provide your parents' information because they might ask for it. So check here if you would like to provide your parents' information. So that can just be a little bit confusing for um, health profession students sometimes um, that they can apply for federal aid on their own, um, but many health professions colleges will request parental information if the student wants to apply for any of their institutional grant money. Uh, so that's something to check uh, check in with the school on what, what their policy is, if they're going to need your parents' info or not. Uh, and also, it's going to be at least the FAFSA form, but some schools might require an additional form called the profile. So you definitely want to check in with, with the schools that you're applying to. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if there's an age cutoff on that. I mean, hopefully by the time you hit 40, they're not asking for your parents' money anymore, but... Yeah, that's (laughs) going to depend on the school, and I think some schools are going to be 
more lenient on that than others. I'll tell you, it's tough. We didn't really have an age cutoff. Um, You know, we would say, you know, sorry, but, you know, why are we going to treat you any differently than we treat this other student just because you waited, you know, five more years to go to school. Um, Mm -hmm. So we did not have an age cutoff, but other schools might. So, yeah, I would definitely check in with the school on that. Okay. All right. Good to know. All right. So what kinds of, um, what types of financial aid are available? I mean, I think most people think of loans as being the only aid that's available. Is that true? Or do, are there grants on offer as well? So I think when, when most people are thinking of loans for like medical school, they're thinking in the right direction. They're um, is generally some grant money available, and it's all going to depend on the school how much money they have to give, um, but it tends to be very little. Just uh, as an example from my time at Tufts, when I was there, slightly less expensive than it is now, the cost of attendance might have been like $80,000 a year, something like that. Um, our maximum grant, if you were kind of the very poorest student who applied, was $6,000. And then we also offered some merit scholarships. Again, the maximum was $6,000. Hopefully those have gone up a little bit since I've left as the cost has gone up. But basically the school cost 80000 If you were the very poorest and the very highest achieving student, you might have got 12000 of that covered with grant and scholarship money, and you were still having to borrow um, you know, the rest, you know, dollars $70, $70,000, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, so it, for these health professions programs, um, it is, in fact, mostly loans, um, and not even the best kind of loans, the subsidized loans that didn't accrue interest that you might have had as an undergraduate, those are not available for graduate students. Um, all you can borrow from the government is unsubsidized Stafford loans, um, which do accrue interest beginning immediately. Uh, now, it's very automatic. You can borrow these the unsubsidized Stafford loans, and you can get larger amounts. You might remember as an undergrad only being able to borrow five, six, seven thousand dollars a year. In these health professions programs, you can borrow around forty thousand dollars a year from the Stafford loans. And if you need more than that, um, there's another loan called the Graduate Plus loan. Um, again, comparing to undergrad, uh, as an undergrad, your parents could borrow a plus loan to help cover your education. As a graduate student, you can borrow it yourself. Um, as long as you have no adverse uh, credit, um, no adverse kind of hits to your credit report in the last few years. Um, so basically, you can borrow a great big $40,000 unsubsidized loan every year, and whatever else you're short, you could borrow in a grad plus loan. It is mostly loans. Um, I looked up some average figures. The average debt for a veterinary student, which is the, the lowest debt of all the health professions, $143,000 coming out of school. Uh, medical student, 183000 Dental students, my friends at the dental school, $261,000 um, in average debt. Um, so most health profession students are coming out uh, of their program with significant debt. That's one reason when I talk to undergrads or high school students looking for an undergraduate program, if they know medical school, dental school, veterinary school is in their future, I really advise shopping around for a good deal for undergrad. There's much more scholarship and grant money available as an undergraduate student. So if you've got, you know, a limited amount of savings in the coffer to pay for your entire education, um, you know there's not much grant money that's going to be available for medical school. So you might want to save the funding you have, you know, look for a good deal, 
less expensive school, a school that gives you good scholarship money for undergrad, so you've got funds available to pay for that graduate program. Yeah, and I can uh, just want to chime in here and, and sort of back that up. You can get into medical school from a relatively, from a school that maybe isn't as well known, that might be yeah. more likely to give you that huge merit aid, as long mm-hmm. as they have a solid science program. Um, and or they're a solid, I should say, uh, liberal arts and college curriculum in general. They can still send yep. you to a top medical school. So exactly, uh, just backing you up on that. I will say I have a friend who did an MD PhD, and so his medical mm. school was actually paid for, not his housing, yes. but his tuition. But I, yes. I'm learning how unusual that was. Very unusual, yeah. And those MD, the PhD programs can be a great deal. Very challenging programs, yes. hard to get into. <laughs> he was in school um, forever. But, <laughs> so, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're willing to go to school forever, that is one way to get medical school paid for if you're doing uh, research through a combined PhD program. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what about a service commitment program? I mean, I think a lot of us have heard yeah. about, you know, you can get some kind of a, a b- better deal or loan payoff if you work in an underserved area, like on a reservation, for example. Yes, that's exactly, that's really the, other than the PhD programs, so the combined programs, this, a service commitment program is, I'd say, the only other way really to get uh, medical or dental school um, totally paid for. And it can be through, um The military, if you're willing to join the military after graduation, they have a great need for, um, for health professions, professionals in the military. They'll pay entirely for your medical school or dental school. We had a lot of kids at the dental school where I worked, uh, in the military programs. Um, National Health Service Corps is another one. Um, that's one where it's not military service, but you're working in an area of the U.S. that does not usually have access to good uh, medical care. It might be like a very inner city clinic or a very rural clinic. Um, Indian Health Service is another program where you're working on a reservation. Um, all of those programs, they can potentially totally pay for your um, your health professions degree. Mm-hmm. All right. And so we only really have a minute left to do this. But if you borrow heavily, is there a possibility of getting loans forgiven? Yes. So actually that National Health Service score that I talked about, if you apply up front, they can actually give you like scholarship funding to pay for your education up front. But you can also actually apply on the back end after you've completed your degree and borrowed and they'll repay your loans for you. Um, Department of Agriculture has a similar program for um, for veterinarians if, if folks are looking into that. Check with your state um, education department or Department of Health. They often have loan forgiveness programs. Um, and the big federal public service Loan forgiveness program um, is applicable to any um, borrower who works full-time for a government agency or nonprofit organization. So a nonprofit hospital would count. Um, so if you're um, going into medicine, we're going to work in a nonprofit hospital setting, there's definitely a way to get um, loan forgiveness after you've made 10 years of payments. So they're not all paid off, but after you made 10 years of payments working for a nonprofit, there's a possibility of getting forgiveness. Okay, well, I think that that is good news. So, thanks so much, Shannon. You're very welcome. Okay, and thanks to the rest of my guests today. Now I want to tell you about our show next week, hosted by my colleague, Beth Heaton. I'll be a guest on the show, and she and I will be discussing bad essay ideas, uh, the kind that almost always backfire in the admission process. In addition, she'll be discussing the Princeton Supplemental Essays, and a guest will be responding to listener questions on financing a college education. 
Finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find shows with subjects as varied as the University of California, schools, and choosing a 529 plan. And if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free to do so. And last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 